Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. Today's story is The Ninth Seduction by Sean McMullen, narrated by Paul Bamer. Sean McMullen is an Australian writer with 20 books and seven dozen stories published in over a dozen countries. He has won 15 Australian and international awards for his fiction and has been nominated for the Hugo, British Science Fiction Association, and Sidewise Awards. He is best known for his neo-steampunk novel, Souls in the Great Machine, and his two most recent books are collections entitled Colors of the Soul and Ghosts of Engines Past. For three decades, Sean had a career in scientific computing at the same time he was writing science fiction and fantasy. But in 2014, he left his computer career to become a full-time writer. Before he began writing, Sean was a professional singer and actor performing in venues as diverse as the Victorian State Opera and the folk rock band Joe Wilson's Mates. He lives in Melbourne and has one daughter, Catherine. And now, buckle up. We're going to light speed. The Ninth Seduction by Sean McMullen Midsummer's Eve The sun had descended behind Lakefell as seven times seven goblin artisans gathered before the throne of Castellarin Linder in the Serpentine Garden, their choicest and most enchanting creations for the year past held high. Chancellor Arender walked slowly along the lines of scarlet cushions that glowed softly around the delights placed upon them, inspecting what the Castellarin would soon consider. As always, he paused and nodded when he reached Raxar, the finest of Cumbriel's master jewelers. Although he had no skills with magic, Raxar could coax such beauty out of metals that one would swear there was enchantment within them. It was Midsummer's Eve in the mortal's year of 1449, but the world of mortals was paid little heed in fairy. The palace of Castellarin Linder was the most splendid of the many elegant mansions of Cumbriel. Its seven towers reached high above the trees of the forested slopes of Lakefell, and all were built of violet marble. Every evening the Castellarin would walk in one of the seven gardens, her milk-white hands clasped behind her back, beneath her pale hair, and the train of her robe held by iridescent beetles that hummed, gleamed, and sparkled like living jewels in the waning light. She walked on no path, 
but on a golden carpet that floated just above the ground, materializing before her feet and dissolving once she had passed. Seven citadel guards in electrum armor followed the Castellaren into the Serpentine Garden, and behind them were her courtiers and the seven mortal youths who were vying to be her favorite for the night. With them was the Sorcerer of Oblivion, who would blot out two thousand years of her memories for a half hour so that she could enjoy being seduced as a virgin of just seventeen summers. The Castellaren had gathered together orchids from all the lands throughout Fairy in the seven gardens of her palace. The walls of Follies were smothered in vines and rock orchids, while within shadowy bowers the deadly cave orchids broadcast alluring scents to those who were passing. Birds fluttered down to the snare flowers, charmed by the scents, only to be entangled and drained of life by their filamentous tendrils. Lyre orchids played music like birdsong to attract cats and snakes that they might feast upon. Most curious of all were the Liberian orchids that grew in a row beside a wall where books were placed for them to read. As the Castellaren walked past, they bowed the flowers that were their eyes and displayed verses favored by her upon their broad leaves. An avatar orchid reared up to greet her by forming a flower in the shape of her face. A handmaid tossed it a live mouse, which it snatched out of the air with leaves lined with thorns as sharp as needles. The Castellaren smiled, because beauty and strangeness were her delight. The throne of the Serpentine Garden was carved from jade, and inset with every type of green gemstone. The floating golden carpet became draperies and cushions to smother it in softness before the Castellaren sat down. She waited until her guards and courtiers had assembled into the order of their rank, then gestured to a troll that loomed high beside the throne. A pigeon was perched upon the index finger of its enormous hand. Pretty bird, pretty bird, Tell me your tale, said the Castellaren. Ladyship, I bear a message from Prince Lortrian, the pigeon declared, its head held high and its chest puffed out. He will arrive in seven days. Pretty bird, pretty bird, fly away home. Tell the prince that his tribute will be ready, and that I yearn for him with desire so strong that it causes me pain. As the bird flew away, the Castellaren's violet eyes flashed with fury, and her blood-red lips parted to bare her teeth. Chancellor Arender stepped forward. You have my sympathy, ladyship, he said, with his eyes cast down. Prince Lautrain has seven times seven elf knight guards, and I have but seven. Each year I must pay his weight in gold, present the choicest jewellery that Cumbriel's artisans may devise, and share my bed with him for seven nights. Will your sympathy end all that? Regrettably no, ladyship. What can you then do to ease my humiliation? I could choose the tribute for you, so that the prince may have your jewellery, but not your choice. That pleases me. Choose in my stead. 
Once the Castellarin had gone, Arenda called a mortal girl to his side. One by one she wore the offerings of the goblin jewellers, bringing them to life upon her flesh. Last of all, she lifted Raxar's offering from his cushion, a tiger pendant made of vermilion gold and black silver chain links. It rippled with sinuous vitality above her breasts as she minced back and forth at Arenda's bidding. As always, your work is chosen, Arenda decided. As always, I am honoured, lordship, said Araxar. The others were dismissed, leaving Arenda and Araxar alone in the Serpentine Garden. There was an echoing shriek from somewhere in the distance, and the goblin glanced fearfully to Arenda. Such a high price to pay for the delights of the Castellarin's bed, murmured Arenda sadly. Did he not please her? whispered Raxar. Even the greatest skills at lovemaking would not have saved him. Her ladyship hates the handsome but vain Prince Lortrian, who fancies himself more fair than even herself. An outrage indeed, for every night she must sleep with him she seduces a mortal and then has him put upon the ferry to the afterlife. It eases her humiliation. I grieve for her dignity, as do I. Speak of this to nobody. Upon my life, never. What price do you ask for your wonder of metal shaping? Only to walk within this garden of delight for an hour, measured by your glass. You merely ask to walk within one of the seven palace gardens every year. Yet you could ask for gold. There are no places more beautiful than the gardens of the palace of Cumbrian lordship. And to create beauty, I must look upon beauty. Midsummer's Day with a tallow torch to light his way, Raxar began the long walk back to the village of Westfell, long after the other goblins had returned. He fell, exhausted, onto his bed and slept as one dead. But at half-light he awoke to the distant rumbling of thunder. He paid it no heed and drifted back into sleep. As he ate breakfast, Raxar again heard thunder this time five sharp, echoing peals, yet the sky was clear and the air utterly still. His neighbours were as mystified as himself. Presently there were three more booms, and the last was followed by a mighty, rumbling crash that shook the very ground where they stood. All work ceased in the goblin village, and artisans and their wives and children gathered fearfully to ask each other questions which none could answer. At noon there came a rider from the Castellarin, who announced that all goblin artisans were to gather up their tools and hurry to the palace. The goblins shouldered their packs, then climbed the path up the side of Lakefell. As they crested the ridge, Raxar saw that one tower of the Castellarin's palace lay smashed. Out on the lake, a small, low ship poured black smoke from twin funnels. Near it was the half-submerged wreck of the Castellarin's pleasure barge, while patches of floating wreckage marked where two other ships had sank. The goblins chattered with apprehension as they approached the palace. But as they entered the walls, 
they fell silent. They were taken to the garden of dawnlight, and here the lady herself sat on the garden's throne with Arender at her side, yet not a single elf knight guard was present. Three hundred and forty-three goblin heads pressed against the flagstones, until they were told to stand and attend the Castellaren. On the Chancellor's forefinger was perched a pigeon. Pretty bird, pretty bird, tell them of the Wilver, said the Castellaren in a voice hoarse with anger. They are goblins. It is beneath my dignity to address them, declared the bird haughtily. The Castellaren's hand shot out and seized the pigeon. Bones crackled softly, and blood trickled between her fingers as she crushed it. Tossing the body to a tangle of eager, grasping vines that grew along a folly wall, she pointed a bloody finger to the ship. That thing is from Earthly. On this boundary day, at the boundary time of morning's half-light, it crossed into our world at the boundary place on the Wilver River. It destroyed the lovely bridge whose curve mirrored my thighs, killed nine elven provosts, sank my three pleasure ships, then smashed down the lofty, glamoured tower. It breathes black smoke and moves by neither wind, current, oars, or tow-rope. Clever artisans of mine, tell me what it is. All were afraid, and none dared answer. Arenda pointed to Raxar. You, the finest of mundane artisans, answer her ladyship, he ordered. The goblin had an answer, yet the Castellaren could end his life for any answer that displeased her. Raxar had visited Earthly, and knew that mortal ships were weapons brought to life by those aboard them unlike the vessels of fairy that merely carried warriors to battle. It is a weapon vessel of earthly. A warship, he said, going down on one knee. Her answer appeared to puzzle the Castellaren, but she was satisfied. The ship is captained by Tordral, a fearsome sorceress, she said, rising from her throne and descending the steps to stand before Raxar. Twice seven years ago she was a maiden of earthly, the daughter of a mortal lord. My wastrel brother came upon her as she sat reading in her summer tower's garden. He had a taste for the maidens of earthly, so he forced his will upon her, then blighted her eyes out of spite. It is not my place to question the whims of elves, said Raxar. At this morning's half-light, my brother paid for that whim with his life long after the act of lust that he had doubtless forgotten. Now Tordral, the twisted, is here in fairy, insane with hate, bent on ripping down all we hold fair. The Castellaren gestured to a distant scatter of bodies on the literal road beside the lake. She annihilated my elf knights, then demanded your labour, my artisan goblins. Go to her, all of you. Go to her camp by the literal road and do as she bids. Upon the beach, the crew of the earthly ship had begun to gather driftwood and burn it for charcoal. 
Nearby were the bodies of the Castellaran's seven elf knight guards and their horses, cut down as they charged the mortals. Tordril awaited the goblins, clothed in chain mail and wearing a helmet, with glass lenses in the triangular eye slits. Who speaks for you? she asked. Raxar raised his hand. I must replenish the powder that drives my guns and bombard, she declared. Bury the dead. Then fetch me yellow sulphur and needles of the moon. That evening, Raxar laid an offering wrapped in cloth at Chancellor Arender's feet, then pressed his forehead to the ground. Dust from the tower's fall coated everything in the garden of half-light, and the servants were cowering as they washed the distressed and wailing orchids. Arender unwrapped the device, which was an iron tube bound to a wooden stock. A consummately ugly trifle, he observed. The mortals call it a gun, said Raxar. It was dropped and forgotten in the morning's fighting. Without the spell that gives it life, what use can it be? No spell gives it life. Only black powder that is thunder made solid. We artisans could make many hundreds in a few days. They are simplicity itself. Just as impetus is stored in a drawn bow, so too is it stored in the black powder made from needles of the moon, sulphur and charcoal, all ground fine. When touched by a burning ember, it discharges a pellet of iron with mighty force. A pellet of iron? Nothing more? No enchanted arrow or forge-hot casting of tangled death? Just a pellet, lordship. How did you learn this? The mortals think we goblins are too stupid to understand the workings of these devices, so they talk freely before us. The goblin's voice trailed into a whisper as an enormous white cat with scimitar fangs sauntered into the garden, licking blood from its muzzle. It stopped, regarded Raxar with disdain, nodded to Arender, then walked on. The Castellaran followed, treading her floating carpet, and clothed only in slightly glowing spiderwebs. Ladyship, this goblin has tidings that will please you, said Arender. Midsummer's Ante Tordrel required the goblin artisans to test their own mixtures of the black powder, if too weak, it produced a shot that would barely spit the pellet from a gon's tube. If too strong, it would burst the tube. After an artisan was carried home with most of his head following in a pail, the others realized they had good reason to take care. The target for the tests was a helmet taken from a vanquished elf knight, placed on a stake, driven into the grass of the littoral. Even at ten paces, only one shot in two actually struck the helmet. What do you think of guns? asked the ship's yeoman cheerfully, after Raxar had survived the test of his first jar of powder. With the greatest respect, Master Ward, they're inferior to even goblin bows. In what way? In all ways. I may shoot off seven arrows while you reload a gun once, and guns are not accurate over an arrow's range. True words, Master Raxar, but how long does it take to learn a bow's use? 
Seven lunar months to build strength of arm, seven to learn shooting, and seven to perfect shooting's art. And who makes the bows? Skilled artisans, using a very particular balance of green wood and heartwood. What of arrows? They are works of art, with heads, shafts, and flights made by families that have perfected their fashioning over countless generations. Yet you goblins have learned the use of gons in an hour's quarter, and any metalsmith could turn out two or three dozen gon tubes in an afternoon. The making of gunpowder can be left to children, and any metal scraps will do if no iron pellets are to hand. In two or three days you could raise a goblin army, and for little cost. But archers are so much better as warriors, and while you spend twenty-one months training your archers, I can raise a thousand goners and conquer your lands. Castellar and Linder was too despondent to use the throne in the Garden of Cascades, and abased herself by sitting on the green marble steps of its dais. Her courtiers stood motionless, downcast and fearful as Arendar brought Raxar before her. In her hand was a dagger, and her bedrobes were soaked in the blood of her third seduction. I have no guards she said, looking up at Raxar. The seven elf knights of my palace had three thousand years of martial exploits and deeds of arms between them. In moments, all gone. How could those clumsy, ugly gons vanquish such prowess and skill so easily? Answer me this, goblin. Ladyship, a single gon may shoot a dozen scraps of iron and so poison the enchanted flesh of many elf knights said Raxar. Gons are easy to make and use. That is their virtue. Give me three days and a purse of silver, and I can give you seven times seven goblins, armed with gons to defend your palace. There was a silence longer than breath may be held before Castellarin Linder replied. You would have my seven gardens, my violet towers, my treasures, my very person defended by goblin lowborns. By loyal goblin lowborns, ladyship. The Castellarin's lips tilted into a grim smile. Courtiers, advisers, sages, nobles, can any of you suggest better guards? She asked. No answer was dared. Three days, you say? She now asked Raxar. Less, perhaps. There are few skills needed, but the goners must be drilled over and over in the loading and firing of guns, so they will not panic or falter amid the carnage on a battlefield. Then get you gone with a purse of silver and build me a new palace guard. They will be ugly to look upon, warned Raxar. They will soil the beauty of your palace. The ruins of Glamoriad Tower soil the beauty of my palace already, goblin. Go with Lord Arender. Tell him all you need. Midsummer Secundus Raxar steered the barge laden with provisions from Wilver Market as a troll towed it through the lake's shallows. It was a stout, inelegant vessel the size of the ship from Earthly. 
Like all goblin boats, it had no enchantment to bind the planks or allow it to slip through the water as smoothly as a skate over ice. The mortal guy was beside Raxar, and had been choosing what Tordril required. This must seem a slow and tiresome way to carry goods, said Raxar with carefully studied innocence. Your ship's machine-rower is surely the Prince of Wonders by contrast. Ha! Its principle is but the soul of simplicity, said Guy. Yet the machine itself is the most advanced in all of earthly. Its making requires the strength of a blacksmith and the touch of a jeweler. I am a jeweler, said Raxar. Are you indeed? Perhaps you might help with its tuning. It needs more of that than a minstrel's harp. My lady Castellarin has commanded that I serve you in all ways. Then you shall indeed tend it. When they arrived at the camp, Guy carried Raxar out to the ship. The goblin was shown the bow pipes where water entered, the complex of levers and valves for directing water and steam, the enclosed cauldron where steam was raised to a very high pressure by a furnace, and the pipes where that steam expelled water with great force to drive the ship along. This machine is a treasure of greater worth than the Queen of Londarian's crown, the goblin declared. Like a crown it needs a jeweler to keep it in good repair, said Guy. The goblin's audience with the Castellarin was in her bedchamber. Beside her, on the silken sheets of a bed wider than Raxar's cottage, her lover of the fourth seduction lay on his stomach, his face staring up at the roof beams, and his body lifeless. He was naked, as was the Castellarin. I have seen the secret of the ship's machine rower, Raxar said, uneasily, glancing from the body to the Castellaran and back again. It is simple in principle, but complex in execution. The Castellaran glared. I desire only good tidings, she warned. Oh, but I have those, ladyship. I have already devised a simpler but more powerful mechanism, a rectangular oar on a hinge thrust out by a piston. It could be working in weeks. You have days. Days will suffice for what else I plan. Tell me your plan. The steam rower's advantage is that it consumes wood which may be found anywhere. A hundred rowers could propel the ship just as well. But they must eat bread, cheese and meats and drink ale. All of these are scarce on a long voyage along strange waterways, so they must carry their own provisions on the ship. Come to your point, or displease me, said the Castellaran. Put a hundred goblin rowers on a barge with a bombard mounted at the bow, and you would have the earthly ship's match. Such a barge need only venture a mile or so onto the lake for a battle, and need not carry provisions. But I have no bombards. I am making a sly study of the mortal's bombard ladyship. It is simple in principle. Your services to me venture far beyond mere loyalty, goblin, said the Castellaran after some thought. Why is this so? You are my Castellaran, ladyship, and what else? 
nothing else. Do not lie to me. Go to my library. You will find it overflowing with tales of great ladies who were so beguiled by the beauty of goblin jewellery that they suffered to have the ugly creators between their thighs as the price of purchase. Oh, no, ladyship, never, declared Raxar with horror that was not feigned. I adore beauty. I could not even bear the thought of a base and ugly goblin such as myself befouling your exquisite form with his touch. Just to worship the sight of your unclothed loveliness inspires me to create jewellery that would make all who look upon it swoon with despair or weep with desire. Then look upon me and be inspired, goblin. Then return tomorrow with the secrets of the mortal's bombard. Midsummer Tertius the ship of wonders had been hauled so close to the shore that it was grounded in the shallows. Raxar helped carry firewood aboard, then took a broom and made a show of sweeping up sand and detritus that had been brought aboard. He worked his way toward the bow, where the mighty bombard was mounted. Renard, the mortal known as the Bombardier, was sitting astride it, watching over the toiling goblins. Who told you to sweep? he asked. Mistress Tordrel, master. Aye. Then if Mistress Tordrel trusts you, so must I. Master Ward said that the bombard is just a gone made big, but to me that seems like comparing a god to a goblin. Renard frowned. Then his face brightened into a smile as he realized that the goblin's regard for the weapon was little short of worship. Ward's guns are hardly more than toys. This bombard is a machine of great precision. See here, wheels for it to recoil upon, and ropes to catch the recoil. Now see this, a ratchet lever for increasing or decreasing the elevation for long or close shots. Mark well that the bombard is thicker in all proportions than those little guns. This is to guard against it bursting, for it fires with a thousand times more force in proportion. Raxar had earlier noticed that Renard seemed lonely. Perhaps no others understood or appreciated his astoundingly powerful weapon, so here was a chance for him to boast of its virtues to someone who would appreciate them. Raxar let him talk at great length, and interrupted only to heap compliments upon the bombard. When Raxar was shown into the Castellarin's bedchamber, her lover for the evening was gone, but there was blood upon the pearly white sheets and her pale skin. She beckoned him closer. I... I have, uh... learned enough of the bombard to fashion one. He stammered, his eyes fixed on the red stains that said so much, yet so little. Build me seven, twice over, said the Castellaran. Fourteen, ladyship, gasped Raxar. All the brass in Wilver Market would barely suffice. Then seize that brass in my name and cast me seven and seven bombards. Begin tonight. Be finished on Midsummer Quintus. The task was close to impossible, yet Raxar knew that whatever had killed the Castellaran's lover would be close at hand and still hungry. Exquisite 
Elegant bronzes, centuries old, would perish in goblin furnaces, but the Castellaran was not inclined to debate the virtues of art over weaponry. It shall be done, ladyship. Midsummer Quadrus On the evening of Midsummer Quadrus, Raxar was fearful of how his tribute for the day would be received by the Castellaran. As Arenda led him into her bedchamber, he saw that the Castellaran's lover lay dead beside her on the bed, while a rustling, writhing assembly of vines, leaves, and tendrils retreated through the window, leaving thin trails of blood on the sheets, rugs, and flagstones. In the goblin's hands was a gift from the mortal guy a mechanism of wooden cogwheels, strings and weights, with a single arm set against a dial with twelve numerals. It was beguilingly intricate, and would have been beautiful, had it been fashioned from precious metals and glittering gemstones. This mortal's struggles lasted a full quarter hour, the Castellaran declared. Should fortune grant me a chance to kill Prince Lortrian, I believe I would again choose my faithful green assassins. How would you kill the prince, goblin? I, uh, the, the prince is surpassing handsome, ladyship, even though his spirit be foul. Should not his death also render his face ugly? Wise words, goblin, and clever. What weapon do you have for me today? What Raxar held was no weapon, so he feared her displeasure. It is called a clock, ladyship. As a ruler marks length, a clock takes a measure of time. How is this deadly? It is useful rather than deadly. If you can mark time, you can control how it is used. Mortals use clocks to regulate work. You might use it to speed the building of guns. True. But think on this. I might measure time by how long a goblin takes to die of bleeding. Yet a sundial, hourglass, or a marked candle can also do that. Ah, but a sundial needs the sun, an hourglass needs to be turned every hour, a marked candle might blow out, and a goblin would be better employed carrying a gun into battle. Truly? I am pleased. Make this clock work for me. Goblins wearing comely masks and silk tunics removed the dead mortal while Raxar attached his clock to a lamp hook on the wall. He adjusted the dropstones, set the reciprocating weights in motion, and moved the hand to where he guessed the day's hour might be. The little machine began to mark off time with regular double clacks. Midsummer Quintus I have been thinking about the weapons of Earthly, said the Castellaran the following evening, after Raxar had reported great progress with equipping and training the goblin guards. In fairy they are secrets, and should be kept as secrets. I have warned all artisans against gossiping, ladyship. Ah, but their little cottages and workshops may easily be visited by spies. 
If my goblin artisans were gathered to work at benches in the great hall of my palace, with a clock mounted above them to mark their goals, think of how well I could guard my secrets and speed the building of guns and bombards. But that would be unbearably ugly, ladyship. Your palace is the crowning jewel of all Cumbriel's fairness. What has beauty ever gained me but servitude? said the Castellaran, her tone suddenly colder than wind blowing across the icy wastes of the north. Tordril's ships of wonders is less comely than a warthog, yet like a warthog it is powerful and deadly. Each day I must look upon that ship and yearn to be its mistress. Then I look upon the ruins of Glamoriad Tower and feel that my palace is all the better for it lying in ruins. Now I look upon your ugliness and wonder if power may be intertwined with it. Goblin, come here. With fingernails sharper than an assassin's dagger, the Castellaran slashed the tunic from Raxar's body. Then she drew him onto the bed beside her. Ladyship, your form enchants me, but... But... Raxar began. Fear not, Goblin. I shall not call my vines to drink your blood. No, no, I fear only that I pollute your beauty with my presence. Then conquer that fear, goblin. Embrace me with your ugliness, and thus make me powerful. Deny me this, and you shall incur my wrath. Now, think thoughts of lust, not beauty. In morning's half-light, as he dressed himself in the rags that his tunic had become, Raxar was as distraught as if he had been ordered to take a hammer to the graceful statues of dancing nymphs in the palace gardens. The Castellaran's body had been touched by his, and like Glamoriad Tower, his loyalty to the House of Cumbriel lay in ruins. Midsummer Sextus Raxar wrestled with his conscience for all of the day that followed. By late afternoon his inner voices were silent and spent. Dressed in a new tunic and with the tools of his art hidden beneath it, he approached the fearsome Lady Tordril. Great and powerful lady, you must flee, and I beg that you take me with you. He pleaded softly. I am a spy, and I have harvested the secrets of your ship of wonders for the Castellaran. We, her goblins, have made many guns and bombards in secret, and enough gunpowder to fill a wagon. With these she will destroy your ship. Why has your heart changed loyalties? Tordwell asked, neither alarmed nor surprised. The Lady Castellaran has embraced ugliness, but I worship beauty. Thus I can no longer be her master jeweller, yet all other goblins remain her loyal and willing servants. Only the gates of her enemies are now open to me. Honestly spoken, Raxar. But I already know much of what you have said. See here. Tordril handed him a tube of polished brass that had curved glass at both ends. Put this to your eye. Point it at Wilver Market, she said. Tell me... What you see. Within the tube the image was upside down, but that image was of distance, brought wondrously close. Elf sight! 
gasped Raxar. No, a trifle of my own devising. What do you see? To my shame, I see bombards on carts, built by my artisans for the service of Castellar and Linda. All to destroy my ship of wonders. That is true. And I burn with shame. Kill me now, if it pleases you. Kill you? When you have done my work so well? Your work, ladyship, I do not understand. Then come along. We must visit the Castellarin. Arender knew he should always take Raxar or Tordril to the Castellarin when either entered the palace, and now they arrived together. He led them to the garden of dark waters, and by a pool of deepest indigo stood Linda and her mortal lover-to-be, their robes, at their feet. Goblin? Mortal? This is not the time for visiting, she said. Young man, if you embrace the Castellarin in that pool, you will be drawn into its depths and drowned once you have pleasured her, warned Tordril. The Castellarin said nothing, but there was the promise of death in her frown. Who are you to question the intent of my lady? The youth replied with a sneer. Tordril extended her hand and dropped an iron pellet into the water. All at once the plants at the water's edge shrieked and chittered as they withdrew long and sinuous tendrils that writhed and lashed with distress. The youth went very pale and began to tremble. Young man, leave, said Tordril. Lord Arenda, go with him. Both looked to the Castellarin. She nodded, and they left. You have my attention, the Castellarin declared, turning on Tordril with her hands on her hips, flouting her naked beauty like a warrior's sword. Castellarin Linda, I have seduced you, declared Tordril, unmoved. I believe I would have noticed, replied Linda, shaking her head, yet puzzled. Would you indeed? Did you notice that I had this master jeweler tutored in the way of guns and their black powder, in the machinery of steam power, and in the arts of using guns to overwhelm even elf knights? Are your workshops of your goblin smiths and artisans not given over to casting bronze guns and bombards? Tell me that your goblin's children are not scouring the caves hereabouts to harvest needles of the moon from bat dung. You wanted me to steal your secrets? asked the Castellarin, the confidence suddenly leached from her voice. That I did. Suddenly, Doubt and fear crowded with Linda. With haste she gathered up her robes and tried to dress, but without her ladies-in-waiting the task was beyond her, and she shouted for help. Maids converged from all directions. I schemed to set you against Prince Lotrian when he arrives this evening. The Castellarin admitted once she was clothed. I hate him. He fancies himself more beautiful than me. I hoped you would destroy him and his elf knights. Then my goblin gunners would annihilate your warriors while they sat resting. Thus would I gain favour with the queen by avenging her son, yet have his head above my bedchamber's hearth preserved in a crystal jar of sour wine. 
Then think boldly upon what you may now do with your guns and bombards, Castellarin. Within the hour's quarter I shall step aboard my ship of wonders and depart. Depart of your own will, with no battle? Yes. I do not understand. You shall. With that, Tordrel turned and strode from the palace, followed by Raxar. When they reached the beach, her ship was trailing smoke from its twin funnels, while muttering to itself in its clank-clang, hiss-chuff voice. She handed the goblin her brass tube. Take this toy. I have another, she said. Use it to learn the secrets of Farsight's. Ladyship, my deepest thanks, said Raxar, dropping to one knee and bowing. You love beauty. Is this not true? With all my heart, yes. Then flee this place. Before the sun's setting, there will be a battle here. While all are distracted and confusion reigns, steal a pony and ride from the salt sea's coast. Your command is my deed, ladyship, but can I not come with you? No, because my revenge on elves will be to seduce all fairy, in the way I have seduced the Castellarin. It would break your heart to see the ugliness soon to come. In the afternoon of Midsummer Sextus, seven times seven times seven goblins stood in seven rows across the literal road, each with a gun at his shoulder. Seven carts, carrying gleaming brass bombards, stood ready, and seven barges bearing bombards were at anchor offshore. Lotrian arrived at the head of his elf knights, archers, and warlocks. Confronting them was the Castellarin of Cumbriel, mounted upon a black horse and holding a sword of adamantium. The prince had his warlocks brought forward, but they perceived no threat from enchantment. He called for his marshal of elf knights, who stared with elven eyes, then reported no danger. Turn about! Flee for your lives! called Castellarin Linder, holding her sword high. It is I, Prince Lotrian, the prince called back. How dare you to meet me! "'dressed in electrum armor instead of gossamer bedrobes. "'Why do you present me with rough-wrought pipes of bronze "'and not the finest jewelry that Cumbriel can craft? "'Where are your fair elf-knight guards? "'Why does this shameful rabble stand behind you?' "'The Castellarin swept her sword down. "'The seven bombards upon the wagons fired iron chains "'that spread as they flew and tore through the ranks of elf-knights, "'archers and warlocks.' Castellarin's first goners fire! shouted the Castellarin, and the kneeling row of seven times seven goblins fired their guns into the chaos that Prince Lotrian's escort had become. Castellarin's second goners step forth! commanded the Castellarin. Second goners fire! Lotrian's bravery was never to be doubted. He charged at the head of his decimated ranks of elf knights as the third row of goblin gunners fired, and they were but yards from the fourth row of goblins when their volley slashed out. 
The battle on the literal road was no easy victory, and seven goblins died for every elf knight, but at close range the gons of the fifth, sixth, and seventh rows were hard-pressed to miss, and the bombards on the barges slew those who sought to flee. Time and again the sweet breath of sulphur mixed with needles of the moon and charcoal flung cold iron into elf knight bodies, then goblin pikes quenched lives that had begun before Rome had been founded. By the time afternoon became evening, all but three elves lay dead upon the literal road. Bleeding from more wounds than could be counted, Prince Lotrian was bound by goblin hands and forced to his knees before Castellarin Linder. What manner of victory is this? he cried. Seven goblins have died for every elf knight slain by your infernal weapons. But goblins are many, quick to breed, and quicker to learn the use of gons, the Castellarin replied, sheathing her sword, then holding her hand out. Arender stepped forward, wearing elf knight armor for the first time in his long life. He presented a gon to the Castellarin then gave her a smoking match fuse. No elf knight will ever again fight for you after this day, the prince warned. What care I for elves, when so many loyal and valiant goblins would die for me? Your days as Castellaren are numbered. But my days as queen lie ahead. Castellaren Linda pointed the tube of her gone between the eyes of the prince, braced the stock against her shoulder, then pressed the glowing end of the match-fuse into the touch-hole. As the white smoke cleared, she gazed down at the ruins of the prince's face with satisfaction. He is now surpassingly ugly, but I prefer him that way, she said to Arender. Have all my goblin subjects from far and near rallied, and parade them past this battleground, Invite any and all to fight and plunder beside me. Consider it done, ladyship. With guns, I can build low-born armies and days and conquer as fast as they can march. All of Londarian will tremble at your very name, ladyship. Lady Tordrell did indeed seduce me, Arenda, and her seduction has given me more pleasure than a thousand years of love-making. My heart shines, with the reflection of your pleasure, ladyship. But where is that goblin jeweller and spy, the one who worships beauty? I wish to make him my master armourer, to shower him with gold, to embrace him as I wash away the blood and grime of this battle in perfumed bath-water. I shall send a runner to fetch him, ladyship. Arender was not to know that the helmeted runner he had dispatched was Raxar himself. By Half-Light's end, the goblin was ten miles beyond his village and leading his stolen pony west by torchlight. Midsummer Septimus The following evening, Raxar gave his pony to a beggar on the docks of Westernport, then walked along the pier of sweetly resinous wood to where a Levantrian trader was moored. A single guard with a scimitar stood at the foot of the gangway. Let me pass. I wish to buy passage to Levantria, said the goblin. Return to your home. The price is too high.
replied the guard. Raxar held up a single coin of red gold. I can pay. The price is greater. Once at sea, your pack and purse would be seized and you would be flung to the waves. But I am a master jeweler. Then you would be sold as a prized slave in Levantria. And would my new master be a prince? Most likely. And would he bid me fashion jewellery of surpassing beauty for the delight of himself and his ladies? Would I serve in a palace of such elegance and enchantment that the very Queen of Londarian would weep with despair at the sight of it? All of that indeed. Then stand aside and let me board. But why flee this land? Have you slain your master, or worse? No. But there is ugliness spreading behind me, and I delight in beauty. One day that ugliness will cover all the world, but for now I may stay ahead of it. And step aboard, slave to beauty. As the sun vanished beneath the horizon, the ship was drawn out to sea with the tide. Raxar stood at the bow, staring with pleasure at the myriad intertwined shades of red, yellow, and oranges on the western horizon, with his back turned on the gathering darkness. Welcome back. You've been listening to The Ninth Seduction by Sean McMullen, narrated by Paul Bamer. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or the social media venue of your choice. Our editor is John Joseph Adams. If you are not already a subscriber to our Hugo Award-winning magazine, check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rybnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by Jack Kincaid, and post-production for Lightspeed is in association with yours truly. Our audiobook, Lightspeed Year One, contains all of the podcasts from our first year and is available at downpour.com and audible.com. Lightspeed Magazine is sponsored this month by our friends at Tor Books, and this podcast is copyright 2015 by Lightspeed Magazine. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund, wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.